right. Good evening, Coastline family. We have sparse attendance in the uh, 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 church tonight, but I know that there's at least the Brinton Salisbury Warrenton Home Church watching. So shout out to you guys, and uh, hopefully there's other people watching online. But having said that, uh, since we're doing more of like a, a Bible study tonight, if you guys didn't hear the news, we're going to be studying through Daniel 7 is, is our um, last Thursday of the month. We do our Signs of the Times discussion, and what we're doing is kind of a, a, a survey through the book of Daniel, which contains a lot of biblical prophecy, and getting a, a grounding in what the Word says about these things. And then we're kind of talking about them and and looking at current world events and how they might relate to them. So this month, we're studying Daniel 7. And uh, we're going to do that tonight. I'm going to try to get through the whole thing. But since it's like a normal Bible study, I thought we'd spend some time coming into the presence of the Lord and worship first. So that's what we're going to do first and foremost. Let me pray, and then we will worship the Lord. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, thank you so much for your word Oh, it was so good just studying through this this week. And just a reminder of how clear your word is simply meant to be understood. And that we don't need to try to figure out what what it's saying or or whatnot. But just really just take it in and and believe it. And we're thankful for the, uh, the information you give us about the things that are to happen in the future because you know as we look around this world and we see things getting in a sense worse and worse it's really easy easy to fall into this mindset of things falling apart but because of you telling us how things are going to end we see that things are just falling into place and that gives us a confident hope or a sure expectation of the good things that you say are going to happen for your followers And so, Lord, we want to know these things so we can have that confidence in your word and in in what is going to happen as we get nearer to your return. So we're not discouraged by the things we see around us. And we don't get caught up in those things, that we do what you say. We instead look up or we keep our focus on you and on the mission you've given us to be witnesses to all ends of the earth so that not only are we going to be with you, but we take as many people as we can with us. So, Father... May tonight be a blessing to your people as we simply just go through the word of God and see what it has to say uh, about these things that are still to come in the future, Lord. And Father, um, as we just open up with uh, uh, these songs of praise, I pray that they would lift our spirits, lift our countenance. I think of how in this chapter, Daniel's countenance was troubled and, and it was changed um, he was discouraged at what he was shown um, because of his compassion for his people, Lord. But we also see in your word where people, even when they're they're downcast, they choose to praise you because they have all these reasons to thank you, and it changes their countenance for the better. So, Lord, no matter how we're coming to you tonight, we want to praise you because you have done so many things for us to thank you for. First and foremost, you've saved us, and we're yours, and we know where we're going. We know that this life's just a drop in the bucket compared to eternity. And when we leave this life, we're going to the next to be with you for all, forever. So, Lord, we look forward to that day. And we should be able to praise you for that among the many, many other good things you've done for us. So, Lord, be with us in this time. May you draw our 
attention to you so we can hear what you want to say to us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. And uh, as I alluded to in the beginning, we are going to continue our survey through the book of Daniel tonight, this last Thursday of the month. Um, we gather out here at the church, we're, we're talking specifically, we call it signs of the times, we're specifically focusing on future Bible prophecy and this, this, this is the next chapter in the book of Daniel. We start in Daniel 2 that contains what we call predictive prophecy, prophecy that still hasn't happened yet. And again, uh, the, the, the heart, the desire with our study for any biblical prophecy is always to look at what God's word has to say first and foremost, and then being watchful or observing of the current events happening around in the world around us and then recognizing how they may relate to what God says is going to happen as we get nearer to Jesus's return. And that's exactly in line with what Jesus tells us or how to look at Bible prophecy in Matthew 24, 32, 33, where his disciples are asking this very question, like what are going to, what's going to happen as we get nearer to your return? He says, now learn a lesson from the fig tree when its branches bud and its leaves begin to sprout, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see all these things, you can know his return is very near, right at the door. What things? The things Jesus told us, the things God's word tells us that would happen as we got nearer to his return. So when you see all these things, just like when you see a, a fig tree start to bud, you know that it's going to produce fruit soon. Just when you see these things that the Bible tells us, you know that Jesus is coming back real soon. Amen? So... We want to be, we, we, we want to know what the word says, what things those are that we, um, the Lord says we would see as, as Jesus, as his return draws near. And then we want to be watchful and observing of the things happening around us, recognizing, you know, like how the things around us are kind of leading up to those things. So just to give you a recap, if you weren't here for this last study, because it was actually quite some time ago, because it was in last year that we went through Daniel 2, then we had a couple weird months where we didn't have Thursday night signs of the times. And then last month we did a roundtable discussion following up to Daniel 2, which we'll do next month after we go through Daniel 7. But um, So it's been a while, but if you weren't here when we did Daniel 7, um, what happened in between Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, which we're not going to cover, but just to give you a brief recap, is that King Nebuchadnezzar's reign is the, the king of Babylon, which is what was in Daniel 2. It's, it's written from this perspective of Daniel, who's been exiled into Babylon, and King Nebuchadnezzar is the king. So he's lost his throne, or his his reign is ended, and his grandson, Belshazzar, has taken his place as king of Babylon. And Daniel's baby basically able to interpret a message for Belshazzar, just like he did for um, uh, his grand grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, like God sends Belshazzar a message, none of his wise men can interpret it. Daniel's able to, to do it, and um, and it wasn't a good message. Basically, what that message entailed was that because of King Belshazzar's pride and his arrogance, basically he didn't learn his lesson of his grandfather, King Nebuchadnezzar, who had to be humbled because of his pride and arrogance. Because of his pride and arrogance and his failure to give God glory in his life, what happens is basically God says, I'm going to remove your kingdom from you. And ultimately, you're going to be conquered by another kingdom who turned out to be the Mede and the Persian Empire, which if you remember in Daniel 2, 
that was the second world empire after Babylon that God had shown Nebuchadnezzar ahead of time. This is what's going to happen. After your empire is going to come this other empire who's going to conquer you. And that's what happened. It came to pass just as Daniel predicted. And Belshazzar ends up being killed and Darius the Mede takes over his place. Now, under Darius the Mede's kingdom, Daniel still has favor. God gives him favor in his eyes because basically he's just shown to be a value or an asset to the king. And the king has basically three high officials. One of them is Daniel. Daniel, it says in Daniel 6.3, he's the most distinguished out of all the king's wise men. And because of that, it makes the other guys jealous. They come up with a scheme. Hey, this Daniel guy, we know that he only prays to the, you know, his God, one and only true God, the Jewish God. So <clears throat> let's trick the king into making this proclamation where nobody's able to pray or petition to anyone other than the king. And if anyone does that, what we're going to do is we're going to tell the king they should throw him in the lion's den. You guys probably heard this story either in kids' class or, or whatever. And so they get the king to buy into this. And they, you know, unknowing to the king because he wouldn't want to set Daniel up. Daniel's really valuable to him. But they set Daniel up. They say, king, this guy's been praying to another god. And so the king's hands are kind of tied. He's kind of reluctant. But he's like, all right, I got I to gotta follow what I said. And he kind of throws him into the lion's den at the same time. May your God help you, you know? And that's actually what happens. He's in that lion's den overnight. The Lord protects him. He comes out. The king's like thrilled that he actually made it. And he throws those those people that accused him of doing something wrong into that lion's den. And actually what comes out of that is King Darius makes this degree saying, obviously his God is the real God, the most powerful God like throughout the land, all right? So that's where we're going to pick it up in Daniel 7. So it says, um, let me pray one more time for a blessing on the word. Lord God, thank you so much for your word. Again, just it's a lot of material to cover. And it's it's a specific chapter where there's um, details in other chapters. So um, I'm going to be jumping around a little bit, Lord. And I just pray that you would help give us understanding if we don't know these things. Because again... Um, your word's meant to be clear and not confusing. And it's to our benefit to understand these things so that, again, when we see these, start to see these things happening around us, we're not startled, we're not afraid, but instead we're encouraged knowing that you're in control of everything, just as you said, and that we're soon going to be with you. And we want to have that, that, that hope. We want to have that expectation. We want to have that sense of urgency knowing time's short and living every day is like it's our last, Lord. So um, be with us and, and produce that in us, that expectancy that you say we should have in knowing these things. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so it says in verse one, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream in visions of his head uh, as he lay in his bed. So first off, this specific vision uh was given to Daniel by God after the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar, but before King Belshazzar had been killed by Darius the Mede and the Babylonian Empire had been conquered by the Medes and the Persians. So a good outline, if you aren't familiar with the book of Daniel, this is something good, just kind of make a note in your Bible so you understand how to uh, read the, the, the whole book correctly. So the first six chapters are a historic account of the life of Daniel, 
while he was exiled in Babylon. Okay, that's the first six chapters. And then from chapters 7 through 12, the chapter we're starting in today, they describe various visions that Daniel was given by God during that time he was in uh, exile. So basically, it's not chronological. Like 7 through 12, this specific vision we're seeing here, it happens somewhere between chapters 4 and 5. And this specific vision in, in chapter 7 is like a big comprehensive vision of what's going to happen in the future. And then the the three other visions we see in the following chapters that we're going to go through eventually, they basically just give greater detail um, of certain things that are going to happen within the framework of this first vision. So this is kind of important to understand this one. So it goes on to say, Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold... The four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. So Daniel's writing down this dream or this vision that God gives him. And that's what we're reading tonight, what he recorded. And it goes on to describe what he saw, which he describes as four winds of heaven causing the sea to be stirred up. Or the idea is that they're making the sea all rough and stormy. Some commentators seeing those winds as representing like God's sovereign power. There's other places in scripture where God uses the wind to compare to like his will, what he's doing. Uh, Isaiah 27, 7 through 8. That's a good example. You can write that down. I'll, I'll read it to you. But it says, has the Lord struck Israel as he struck her enemies? Has he punished her as he uh, as he punished them? No, but he exiled Israel to call her to account. She was exiled from her land as though, not literally, but as though blown away in a storm from the east. I'm still getting over cold, so if I have to clear my throat, I'm sorry. I will try to cover the mic, but it's dry. In that verse, it, it compares God, God's allowing Israel to basically be exiled to another place as the wind blows. You know, just like God's in control of the wind, he was in control of Israel and what was happening to them just as he's in control of these events we see happening here. And that's important to understand right off the get-go that none of this that's happening is out of God's plan, which is good for us that believe in him. And out of the sea come what he describes is four great beasts that are unique from each other. Now, it's important to know that Daniel 7.17, later in this chapter, defines what these beasts are, all right? I'm gonna read it just so you know says in Daniel 7, 17, these four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. So what we see is that those four beasts that he saw right here represent four kings and their kingdoms that basically would come onto the scene at some point through history. And these four empires all have a geographical connection to the Mediterranean sea as we're going to see which is what we commentators think this great sea that he's seeing that's what it is it's the mediterranean sea which would have been familiar with him because israel's right on the mediterranean sea all right the sea also being used in other places in scripture to describe basically non-believers or those that aren't following god like in isaiah fifty-seven twenty, it says but the wicked are like not literally but they are like the tossing sea for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. So all these kings 
All these empires, they represent these beasts, if you will. They're coming from the sea. And they're, they, these, these empires, as we're going to see it historically, they weren't followers of God, at least for most of their life. Their, their kings weren't followers of God. They were pagan uh, rulers. Verse 4. It says the first, this is the first beast, was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was made, uh, it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. So the first beast was said to look like or resemble a lion. Now, it says like, so it wasn't actually a lion. It resembled or it looked like a lion. And I point that out because the Bible does a good job of defining when it is meant to be symbolic or metaphoric rather than literal. And I feel strongly, this is what I've been brought up in and the best way I've found to approach reading God's word is that it's best to always start out with looking at it from a literal standpoint unless it's telling you that it's meant to be something other than literal, okay? As this passage in this verse is saying like, it's not literally what it's telling you. It's saying it's it's descriptive. It's saying it's like this, all right? Otherwise, if you don't take that that standpoint of like kind of approaching it from a literal standpoint that it means what it says, unless it's defined something else, then, I mean, really it can mean whatever you want it to mean, Right? There's, there's no foundation for you to work from. So basically, if you're going to say it's, excuse me, symbolic or <clears throat> mis, like representing something else um, entirely, you know, what's to say this person's right or I'm right or, you know, whoever's right? It could mean whatever. So again, we want to approach it from a literal standpoint, unless for some reason it's telling us it's not meant to be literal. So this beast, <clears throat> it resembles a lion. But it has eagle's wings, which are pulled off. And the idea most commentators think there is that uh, it's representing that it's been humbled in some way. Because if you think of an eagle that's lost its wings, that's like its main strength, right? It can't fly anymore. So this beast has its wings. It's it's pulled off. It's humbled. And then it says um, the beast is made to be human as it stands on two feet and is given the mind of a person. So this beast is made to be human. It stands on two feet. It's given the mind of a person. Now, if you are familiar with the earlier chapters of Daniel, Daniel chapter 4 specifically, this should sound somewhat familiar. And this is this is why most commentators, because of that chapter, think that what who's being talked about here is King Nebuchadnezzar in his Babylonian empire. As he was great and mighty for a time, and then what happens to him in Daniel 4? God humbles him. Because he's arrogant and he's proud and he won't give God glory. And so God, in a sense, takes away his sanity and he, he, he has to live as an animal. Like he lives out amongst the animal eating grass. And he's, in a sense, crazy and insane for like so many years before he's eventually given his mind and sanity back and restored to being a man and given back his former great stature as soon as he's willing to give God praise in glory. Very much what's like being described here, right? Here you have this mighty lion with these great wings. They're plucked off. They're humbled. And then at some point, he's lifted back up to be like a man, you know, in, 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 in 
um, and and in uh, given the mind of man, given his sanity back. All right, so it's very, it's a very good description of, or it's a very similar description to what happened in Nebuchadnezzar that we see in Daniel four. Now, also, the prophet Jeremiah also describing Nebuchadnezzar and his empire. Um, as a, he, he describes him as a lion and eagle when he's talking about the judgment God's going to bring on Edom in Jeremiah 49, 19 through 22. I don't have time to read it, but it's just another parallel passage that where you see the Bible defining itself and that Jeremiah also uses those terms to describe that nation. And then also, just so happens, that a lion with wings is, was the national or a national emblem of the Babylonian Empire. A relic of it actually still exists today in Iraq. I think we're going to have the picture up there on the screen. But basically, it's a historical gate of the actual city of Babylon that still stands in Iraq that you can see today. And when that picture gets up there, it'll actually show you of uh, it's a it's like a mosaic of what is basically a lion with wings. All right, and that was a national emblem of that country, similar to what's described here in Scripture. Amen. So, for those reasons, that's why a lot of commentators believe that's who it's talking about: Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, that empire. That's that first beast. Beast, verse five, and it says, "And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth." And it was told, arise, devour much flesh. So the second beast Daniel sees is said to be like what? A bear, all right? Resembling a bear, not an actual bear, but like a bear. A bear not being as majestic as a lion or an eagle, but having more brute strength, kind of being bigger and and lumbering. And this particular bear being said to have a voracious appetite for Flesh, or the idea is that it had a great desire to kill and, and, and devour, all right? And this is thought to speak of the Medo-Persian Empire, which was successful mainly due to its overwhelming size. If you guys know anything about history, about these different like empires that came, and you can do quick searches for these, the Medo-Persian uh, Empire was considered, you know, like comparing like the population back then with the population now and of different countries. It was considered one of the largest armies that ever was on the earth. Actually, it's pretty impressive. It was 2.5 million people is what they estimate at the highest amount. So by its sheer size, it was able to conquer because of how big it was, all right? History also telling us that it was known for being extremely brutal and cruel to those that it attacked, all right? Like this ferociousness that it describes here with this bear. I was kind of doing a little research on that, and they had this method they would sentence people to death that was rather rather pretty cruel, where they had this huge tower that was like only twenty over 20 feet tall, and they filled it with ash, and they would drop people in it from the top who, falling through the ash, might be lucky to survive. They might break something on the way down, but when they did survive, they'd have these wheels that would turn the ash inside so it would force it into people's nostrils and sinuses and, and mouths. And basically, they would be forced to suffocate on ash. And that was like a way they would kill people. I mean, like 
cruel and unusual punishment. That's what they were known for. Now, these three ribs that are mentioned in the mouth of this bear hair are thought to represent the three major military conquests of the Medo-Persian Empire, which would be Babylon, Egypt, and Lydia. Now, some theologians say that the bear here represents just the Medes by themselves, and that the next two beasts we're going to see represent the Persian and the Greek empires, thereby removing the fourth beast from representing the Roman Empire. We're going to talk about this in a little more detail, but the whole point of that is to remove the future prophetic um, meaning of this text, basically to say it's all already happened right now. But the problem with that, historically, is that the Mede Empire didn't come on the scene after Babylon. It actually started kind of gaining steam even before Babylon became the world empire. And at the same time, it didn't come after. And the Mede Empire in itself, before the per- it joined forces with the Persians, was never considered to be oh, an empire of the known world or like the kind of the big dog that was in charge of that whole area. It wasn't until they joined with the Persians. So historically, that doesn't really work, that, that train of thought. Um, it goes on in verse 6 and it says, After this, I looked and behold another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast uh, had four heads and dominion was given to it. So this third beast, Daniel sees, is what looks like or resembles a leopard. And it has four wings. It has four heads. Now, leopards are known for being clever and smart in the way they attack their prey. Ever, you know anything about leopards? Okay. Well, they're not big like a bear. They're not big like a lion. So they can't really overpower things. So they have to be quick and stealthy, right? Strategic and fast where they kind of sneak attack in order to like make sure. Yeah, exactly. They got to quickly and decisively kill what they're trying to kill so they don't get injured and they don't get overpowered, right? Now, as such, this beast is thought to represent Alexander the Great in his Greek empire who conquered the Medes and the Persians or basically was the next world empire that came on the scene. And, and, and Alexander, if you know anything about history, had a much smaller army than uh, the other two beasts here. Actually, in that the main deciding battle where he beat, I think it was Darius the Mede, like Darius the Mede had something like a couple hundred thousand soldiers versus his like 50,000 soldiers. And it was because of his strategy, which he was known as like a great military strategist. Um, and, and like his victories were always like very cunning and, and like planned out and like quick and decisive, you know, like it wasn't about brute strength. It was about um, strategy or whatnot. That's what history, what he was known for. So that's why they think that that's what this is representing. His army also happened to be run by basically four main generals that kind of oversaw it. And then when he died, actually at a relatively young age, uh, the the Greek empire was taken over by or given control of it, was given to those four main generals, which is what people think the four wings and the four heads speak of, basically. So we have the Babylonian empire, is the first beast, that lion. We have the Medo-Persian Empire is the second beast of bear. We have the Greek Empire. Again, and these are the way these empires appeared throughout history, just in this order. And this should sound somewhat familiar because 
This is exactly what Daniel 2, that statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw, was speaking of, right? And then it goes on to say in verse 7, And after this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it and had ten horns. And I considered the horns and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. So this fourth beast it's unique, unlike any of the other beasts that he sees. And really, it's not like anything. He can't compare it to an animal. He hasn't seen anything like this before. He says it's more terrifying than the other beasts. And it was exceedingly stronger. And as such, it was able to destroy anything that came into its path. Um, the beast also had ten horns. Horns being seen as a uh, the strength of an animal, as they're used as a weapon they speak of power they speak of aggression and back in those times they were kind of used to uh, represent countries or people that had those similar traits that that were strong and aggressive hence the reason sorry hence the reason daniel sees this beast is exceedingly mighty as basically it has 10 horns right not just one and among these 10 horns there came up another little horn this horn having eyes like that of a man, or the idea is that it had understanding and wisdom. Um, it was able to perceive, it was able to see things, all right? And it says it also uh, was speaking great, or some of your translations probably say boastful things out of its mouth. And the little horn also was responsible for plucking up or replacing three of those ten main horns. Now, the ten horns and the iron teeth of this beast, those numbers should sound somewhat familiar if you were with us when we did our study through Daniel 2. Because if you were here and you watched that study or you, you, you watched it online, you should remember that Nebuchadnezzar, he sees this huge statue, right, that just inspires awe in him. And that statue, as we went through it, represented four kingdoms because it was, it was made in by different materials from the top to the bottom, right? In descending, um, like, uh, significance, if you will, or descending strength, descending value. Um, the head was gold, which represented Babylon. The chest and the two arms, two arms, basically, of silver, one Mede-Persian empire, you know, both those countries. The middle of the statue and the thighs uh, were bronze, representing the Greek empire. And then its legs were... Iron, um, which represented the previously existing historical Roman Empire, and then its feet were iron mixed with clay, being the being the future world empire that's going to come out of once what once was a historical Roman Empire. And here, this fourth beast also has teeth that are described as iron, like the legs of that statue, and it has. Ten horns, like the feet of that image, had ten toes. All right, so you see some similarities. We kind of talked about that ahead of time when we went through Daniel 2, which leads to a lot of commentators to believe that this fourth beast is basically talking about the same empire, the Roman Empire, that conquered the Greek Empire 
and went on to rule the known world at the time until eventually in history it fell apart. But as we talked about last time, will be resurrected in the future, being controlled by ten kings, or at least out of what used to be the Roman Empire, there will be some sort of revived empire that exists out of ten kings, um, or controlled by ten kings, who come under the authority of this little horn who is the Antichrist, and he will talk, or we're basically going to go in more detail as we go through this. Let me move on to the next one. Verse 9, and it says, As I looked... Thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand 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 served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. And the court sat in judgment, and the books were open. So now you see this vision change change to like basically i mean what's pretty obvious even just reading it at face value it's like a heavenly scene of the lord you know based off of very similar descriptions in the other parts of scripture um so he sees the lord who's given the name ancient of days and there's some debate whethering whether this the lord he sees is god the father or god the son though most think that what he's seeing is god the father because what we're going to see here a little later in verse 13 is that the son of man which is a name given to Jesus in several places of scripture, is distinguished from the Ancient of Days or God the Father. They're, they're like He's basically seeing both of them in this vision. So most think it's God the Father he sees here. But one reason, um, or uh, either way, Daniel sees an awesome image of the Lord who's seated on the throne. His, his hair and his clothing are brilliant, brilliantly white, which we know... It speaks of his righteousness, his perfection, his holiness. And he's got fire all around him, streaming from him, his throne having wheels of fire. Thrones in that day usually were on wheels so they can move royalty around. It might be speaking of like how God is active and he's always moving, he's always working. Um, But also, if you were with us through our study through Ezekiel way back in the day, this should sound somewhat familiar because this is a lot like the image Ezekiel had when he saw the Lord on his throne with flaming wheels and fire all around. It's kind of the same thing. Now, God's word also tells us in Isaiah 66, 15 through 16, see the Lord is coming with fire in his swiftest, talk about the Lord's judgment, in, in his swift chariots roar like a whirlwind. He will bring punishment with the fury of his anger and the flaming fire of his hot rebuke. The Lord will punish the world by fire and by a sword and he will judge the earth and many will be killed by him. This is talking at the end of the tribulation, basically, when God comes to bring judgment. So basically, what that's why most people think what this fire, fire speaks of judgment in the Bible. So this fire coming from his throne is talking about his judgment that he's going to bring on this empire in, in, in the beast, basically. And the Lord, he's, it says in verse 10, he's surrounded by like a huge amount of angels who's, who are there to serve, serve him along with what appears to be humanity there in front of him to be judged. It's sounding familiar to what's referred to as the great white throne judgment, where basically it says there that thousand times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were open. Now it tells us in revelation 20, 11 through 15, this is the great white throne judgment that comes at the end of the millennial reign of Christ, where anyone that has not placed their faith in Jesus will have to stand before God 
and give an account of their life, proving to him that they were perfect and they never did anything wrong, which isn't going to go well. That's why we want to believe in Jesus now, so we don't have to get there. Um, but it says, And I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it. The earth and sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne. And the books were opened, including the book of life, and the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up its dead, and death and the grave gave up their dead, and all who were judged according to their deeds. Then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire, another name for hell. This lake of fire is the second death, and anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Now also, those whose names are not found in this book of life, Revelation thirteen eight tells us they're also the ones that have taken the mark of the beast or the Antichrist and and um basically chosen to worship Satan by worshiping him. All right. So it kind of ties right there with what he's talking about is God's coming in with fire and judgment and he and these people are standing before him um, that and they're opening this book, probably the book of life. They they're people that follow this beast, the beast in his his empire, if you will, and they're going to be judged. All right, and we see that more as we go through this. Now, something else I want you to know, just because this was interesting, I hadn't seen this before. If you look at verse nine, it uses the word in this vision when he's seeing this kind of heavenly vision. Um, it uses the plural form of the word thrones, right? It says thrones with an S, okay? But it says only the Lord is seated on his throne. Now, Revelation 4, 4, when John has a vision of heaven, also tells us that there's multiple, there's numerous thrones in heaven. Who's sitting on the rest of the thrones? When In Revelation, when, when John sees his vision of heaven, do you guys remember? Elders, right? The 24 elders who we think represent the church to some degree because this is after the church has been raptured to heaven and you see these 24 elders sitting on their thrones around God, basically worshiping him, all right, 24-7. Now, here's what I think is interesting. When Daniel sees these thrones, he doesn't see anyone on those other thrones and maybe that's because the church hadn't come on the scene yet or... Because the mystery of the church, Paul tells us in Ephesians 3, 1 through 7, wasn't revealed to the Old Testament saints. They had no idea what God was going to do in the future. So maybe that's why he only sees God on his throne and the other thrones empty here. Anyways, I thought that was a cool little detail. I hadn't seen that before. So it says in verse 11, I looked then because of the sound of the great, some of your translations probably say pompous, words that the horn was speaking this would be the little horn and as i looked the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire as for the rest of the beasts their dominion was taken away but their lives were prolonged for a season in a time i saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. There you see the, the difference there. Jesus, God the Son, and God the Father. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion 
which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So, Daniel's captivated by the things that are being said by this little horn. You know, these boastful and blasphemous things, um, which actually is a trait of the Antichrist in Revelation 13, 5 through 6, too. And I'm going to kind of read and tie these together where they're talking about the same beast. But that's something the, the, the beast does in Revelation 2, who we know to be the Antichrist. This fourth beast uh, is killed, as verse 11 tells us, but the other beasts are allowed to have dominion or authority, um, or they have their dominion or authority taken away, but they're allowed to live for a season. So what most commentators think this is right here is this transition from human authority to godly authority over the earth, which we know happens when? When Jesus comes back, right? At his second coming, that's when Jesus establishes his kingdom on this earth and his rule and reign and all authorities taken away from the Antichrist in his his empire, which is what they believe verses 13 and 14 are talking about. At which point the beast or the Antichrist, he's going to be thrown in the lake of fire or hell by the Lord, and Jesus is going to establish his kingdom. And whereas some nations will be allowed to continue to have um, like existence in the millennial age, there's going to be like, best we understand, like earth where there's still places like like uh, like countries like we have now, but they're all going to be under the authority of Jesus. There's going to be people that go into the millennial reign. We're coming back with Jesus, those that have been raptured, the church up with them. But there's going to be people that kind of go in as humans and and have babies during that thousand years and stuff. But they're all going to be subject to God, which is a pretty crazy thing. Because I was just thinking about this the other day, how can you imagine how awesome it's going to be to live on a world where if somebody does something evil, it's instantly dealt with with perfect justice. I mean, we've watched over the last couple of years where like there's just chaos going on and it's allowed to happen. And where does that get us? It just makes things worse, right? But when Jesus is here, it says that we're actually going to rule and reign with him. There's going to be perfect justice instantaneously whenever there is something that is done that is sinful. And that is going to be an awesome place to live, all right? So, anyways, that's kind of what it's talking about, this transition over there, all right? And Jesus' kingdom, it's not going to just be for a thousand years, but rather forever, as verse 14 says. A thousand years on this earth, and then going into eternity when the new heaven and the new earth, as Revelation 21 tells us about, um, God makes a, a new heaven and new earth for us to live in forever. It goes on in this, verse 15, and it says, As for me... Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. We were talking about fear and worry on Sunday and it's always good to know when I see these saints like Daniel, they struggle with those same things, all right? He's, he's seeing this stuff happening and it's kind of freaking him out. It says in verse 16, I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the thing. So Daniel, he's alarmed at what he's been shown. Part of the reason is because he doesn't really fully understand it. So what does he do? He asks for it to be explained to him. That's a good thing for us to remember because James 1 5 tells us if you need wisdom, ask our generous God and he will give it to you. And, and that's exactly what we should do when we lack wisdom in our life. And that's exactly what God does. He gives him the wisdom he needs. It says in verse 17, 
as we get into this interpretation of what he's seeing. It says, these four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints, that's you and me, anyone that's placed their faith in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and forever and ever. And ever and ever and ever. That's forever. <clears throat> so these verses confirm that Daniel's vision here in chapter 7 is exactly what Nebuchadnezzar was seeing in chapter 2. You know, talking about these four kings, these four empires, all right? The rise of these that are uh, basically succeeded, like in Nebuchadnezzar's vision, if you remember, you see this big statue. Um, when he's given the interpretation by Jan- Daniel, it's the four different kingdoms, like the different materials. And then basically what happens, a big rock that represents Jesus comes and just demolishes the whole thing. Because that's exactly what's going to happen. Jesus is going to come and just rule and reign. So that's what you're seeing here. And the fact that the Roman Empire has historically been gone for quite some time. And that we haven't seen Jesus' eternal kingdom established yet. Which is what we're going to be part of. Is what takes people either down one of or down one of either two paths all right in their interpretation of god's word okay the first train of thought is that a revived roman empire of some sort is going to come in the future that will literally fulfill this prophecy of 10 horns in a little horn basically it being made up of 10 nations and then this this person coming on the scene with within those 10 nations that leads it who is the antichrist okay which is what i shared when i taught through daniel 2 and that we've already seen the beginning of as soon as israel was established as a nation in 1948 what happened the european union started to form and come on the scene that's not the final world empire but it was the beginnings of a revived roman empire we started that come start to come into place and and that's kind of taken different forms throughout the years. There were times where people where it was up to ten, and people were like, "Here it is," and then it went up to twenty. It's like somewhere up there around now. But you know, there's all these different actually unions over there, like economic unions and all this. But in some way or another, the this final world empire led by the Antichrist is going to come down to ten kings or ten kingdoms, and he's going to come out of that. Now, the other way people interpret this is that. They spiritualize what is being talked about in this chapter, among other places in Scripture, so as to say these things have already happened or they are happening right now. When I say spiritualize, what I mean by that is that it's not literally talking about um, things that are still to happen. Like, basically, the idea is that when Jesus first came, he established his kingdom through his people. And so right now, we're building his kingdom here on this earth. We're doing what it's talking about here in that when Jesus comes and rules and reigns and everything's made right, we're doing that right now. Now, the big obvious elephant in the room that I always ask is like, well, why are things getting worse all throughout history if that's the case? Because I don't know about you, I have not seen things get better. They only get worse and worse. So... If that's the case, if I'm living in the kingdom now, I feel pretty lied to, all right? I'm kind of disappointed because I thought it would be a lot better. Um, but having said that, that is some people's train as a thought. And 
And, and I guess, you know, that the major, one major issue that I see in this passage that kind of conflicts with that is that it says God's people will receive and possess his kingdom, as verse 18 says, not achieve, not something we make happen or earn. It's something we're given. But it says that when's that going to happen? After verses 13 and 14, which is after Jesus's return. All right. Now, here's the, the discrepancy or where people disagree is that it's whether it's talking about his first coming or his second coming, which I think this this scripture and other scriptures make it clear that there's a second literal coming of Jesus. And it's after that that his kingdom is established on this earth. But some would disagree with that. Um, it goes on in verse 19. All right. Uh, then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron in claws of bronze, which, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. So Daniel, he's especially interested in this little horn based off of what he observes about it. It's like unlike anything he's ever seen. He specifically wanted to know, um, like, what intrigued him, I guess, is, is that basically how is this thing being allowed to make war with God's people and appear to defeat them in some way until the Lord came and defeated it and gave his kingdom to his people. It says in verse 23, here's the interpretation. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it into pieces. Now, that particular part of that passage is very fitting description of the Roman Empire is it did devour and dominate the whole known civilized world for about a thousand years, all right? Obviously, there were people on other continents and stuff like that, but they weren't considered part of the civilized known world at the time. So the Romans were in control of all of it for you know a good thousand years before their kingdom started to crumble, okay? But it goes on to say <clears throat> in verse 24, as for the ten horns... Out of this kingdom or out of the Roman Empire, ten kings shall arise. Kind of the idea is like resurrect, like come out of it. And another shall arise after them. And he shall be different from the former ones and shall put down or remove from power three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times in the law. And they shall be given into his hand. These would be um, those of the Most High. For a time, the Bible defines a time in other places as one year. Times, that would be two years. And half a time, which would be half a year. So, let me read you some corresponding passages that speak about the Antichrist and his kingdom that talk about these very same things from the book of Revelation. The Apostle John in his vision in Revelation 13, saw in verse 1, it says, Then I saw a beast rising up 
out of the sea. Same thing Daniel saw. It goes on to say, it had seven heads and ten horns with ten crowns on its horns. Crowns speaking of kings or authority. So again, it's the same as what Daniel's being told here. These ten horns representing ten rulers. All right. So it goes on to say, and written on each head were names that blasphemed God. Basically what verse 25 in Daniel says the little horn is going to do. goes on to say, this beast looked like a leopard, but it had the feet of a bear and the mouth of a lion. So this fourth beast has traits of all the beasts Daniel has shown, but it's unique in that it's kind of reflective of all of their, their kind of their their traits that allowed them to be dominant and, and successful, if you will, in, in conquering the world. And it goes on to say, and the dragon, Revelation twelve nine tells us that Satan or the devil is like a dragon. Okay, he's not a literal dragon, but that's who is speaking of there, Satan or the devil. And it says, and the dragon gave the beast his own power in throne. In great authority, Jesus tells us in John fourteen thirty that Satan has been allowed to have authority and power on this earth. And so he gives that to the Antichrist through this beast, all right? And it says in verse 3, I saw that one of the heads of the beast seemed wounded beyond recovery, but the fatal wound was healed. We know that the beast is going to be like a fake Jesus. He's going to like look like somehow he should be dead, but he resurrects. And that's going to convince people to follow him. And it says the whole world marveled at this miracle and gave allegiance to the beast. They worshiped the dragon or Satan for giving the beast such power. And they also worshiped the beast. Who is as great as the beast? They explained. Explained. Who is able to fight against him? Those are all traits that Daniel noticed about this first beast. Like he was like appeared to be undefeatable, you know, like more powerful than anything he's ever seen. Victorious in all he did. And that's what the people are acknowledging about him. It says in verse 5, Then the beast was allowed to speak great blasphemies against God. And he was given authority to do whatever he wanted for 42 months. How long is that? Three and a half years. All right. And he spoke terrible words of blasphemy against God, slandering his name and his dwelling. That is those who dwell in heaven. And the beast was allowed to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. Exactly what verse 21 in Daniel tells us about the little horn. And he was given authority to rule over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all the people who belong to this world worship the beast. They are the ones whose names were not written in the book of life that belongs to the lamb who was slaughtered before the world was made. John also sees another vision of this beast in Revelation 17, starting in verse 12. He says, the ten horns of the beast are ten kings who have not yet risen to power. They will be appointed to their kingdoms for one brief moment to reign with the beast. Then they will all agree to give him their power and authority. Together they will go to war against the lamb, that being Jesus. But the lamb will defeat them because he is the Lord of all lords and king of all kings. And his called and chosen and faithful ones will be with him. That's us. Amen? That's the good news. That's what we want to, that's why it's important to know this. We know that in the end we're on the winning team and that's the best team to be on. So, now, nowhere in history could this prophecy of King, 
ten kings rising out of the Roman Empire have been literally fulfilled up to this point. Unless you spiritualize or you get extremely liberal in symbolizing, you know, like other other things that have happened throughout history, trying to make it fit into this. Which some great theologians, who I would admit are smarter than me, have tried to do but there's major flaws with those those thinkings john calvin was one of them he said that the ten horns were a general uh or rather than a literal representation of all the kings and rulers in the empire of rome which were there were like hundreds of them but he's saying that 10 wasn't a literal number it just represented all of them and he's saying that that little horn or he said that little horn was representative of the roman emperor julius caesar and basically all the emperors that came after him, all right? So he kind of took it and just kind of fit it into where he saw it fit in history. Now, he spiritualized other things that we see in the section, like in verse 10 where it's talking about this book being opened at this judgment. And he said, oh, that was just them explaining the gospel to people because people had, you know, throughout history, they have the option to either receive it and be saved or be judged. So as you can see, it's, it's, it's like, again, what you see with commentators that do that is they all have differencing opinions on what in history is speaking of these things because pretty much it can mean wherever, whatever you want, whatever you think it fits best if you kind of take that route and you're not reading it from a literal perspective. And again, um, but seeing as how, like, I, I guess my, my, my main issue is like knowing that, knowing that if you, if you look at it symbolically, it can mean whatever you want. But seeing as how those 10 toes, they're shown in Daniel 2, there's 10 horns shown in Daniel 7, also shown in Revelation 13, also shown in Revelation 17, also being associated with specific kings and kingdoms in this final world empire, this beast that's spoken of. And there being no indication in God's word that it's supposed to represent something else. It's supposed, it's speaking figuratively or symbolically. Why would you spiritualize it, I guess? Like, like it's something is so defined in multiple places in my mind the more logical approach is to see it for what it says it is this little horns the antichrist these 10 10 horns are 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 representing these nations that eventually are going to come out of what used to be the roman empire sometime in the future you know like we haven't seen it happen yet or anything in history like this so it still must be in the future i believe it's going to be during the tribulation or after the church is raptured Maybe those 10 nations start coming on the scene before that, but Second Thessalonians tells us that the Antichrist isn't going to be revealed until the restrainer, who I believe is the church, the Holy Spirit in the church, is removed. Then he's going to be revealed. He might be living now, but we won't know who he is, and we're going to be gone in heaven. But having said that, why wouldn't you take it that way? And, and these passages do make some things very specifically clear about this little horn, this Antichrist. He's going to speak plainly and openly against the one and only true God. He's going to persecute God's people uh, through wearing them out, as verse 25 says, or the idea is he's going to oppress them. And um, and this may be specifically referring here in Daniel 7 to the Jews as God's people, because this is, you have to remember, a prophetic book written to the Jews. But having said that, it most certainly could also be applied to those that our Christians are saved during the tribulation because Revelation tells us what's going to happen to them if they don't worship the beast, if they don't take his mark, they're basically going to be 
killed and they're not going to be allowed to buy or sell anything. Okay. So it could refer to either. Um, but this is an argument by some as to why Christians have to be on this earth. They can't be raptured because it makes it sound like Christians are going to be persecuted by this beast, which I think is a bad argument because here's the thing. We can still be raptured, the church, and there are going to be Christians, people that get saved during the tribulation. There are going to be Jews that get saved during the tribulation. That's what Revelation tells us. So there's still going to be Christians available to be persecuted that time. Um, they get saved after the fact. They basically go into the tribulation. And hopefully a lot of them are the people we've told, you know, these things that, hey, this is what's going to happen. And for whatever reason, they chose not to believe it. But then they see this stuff happening and they're like, wow, they were right. And they get saved. All right. And eventually they'll be with us. But having said that, they'll have to go through that time. So I don't think that's really a good argument. Now. It also says he's going to change. This is in verse, is it? I think it's 25. Um, yeah, verse 25. It says he's going to change the times in the law. Now, again, this being written to Jewish um, believers, um, that's probably referring to the sacred festivals and the laws of the Jews. It could be, I mean, the Antichrist might come to the scene and try to change moral laws and judicial laws. But... Um, Daniel 9.27, which we'll get to eventually and study through that, says that the ruler, the Antichrist, will make a treaty with the people for a period of one set of seven. This is the Jewish people for one set of seven. But after that, so basically, but after half this time, so he's going to make some sort of treaty, some sort of peace agreement with Jewish people uh, for seven years. But it says after half the time or after three and a half years is that number again, just as verse 25 mentions. He's going to put an end to the sacrifices and offerings. And as a climax to all his terrible deeds, he will set up a sacrilegious object that causes desecration until the fate decreed for this defiler is finally poured out on him. Which, as we go through Daniel, we'll talk about this more. But basically what's going to happen is he's going to make some sort of peace agreement with the Jews. We know that they're all looking for that in the Middle East right now. Probably another reason why people are going to follow this guy thinking, man, he, he created something no one else could do. And it's going to allow them to rebuild the temple because otherwise they wouldn't be doing sacrifice and offerings. And at the midpoint of that, he's going to reveal himself for who he really is. And he's going to say, you need to worship me as God. And he's going to like a step, try to establish his throne in the middle of the temple where the one and only true God is going to be worshipped. Many Jews are going to wake up at that point. They're going to believe in Jesus. They're going to get saved. Um, but nevertheless, um, he's going to try to end all of their worship and stuff and, and get them to worship him. goes on in verse 26. But the court shall sin in judgment, and his, this will be the little horn's dominion, shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. I want to see that again. I want to say that again. It's received. It's not achieved, all right? This, this kind of teaching that somehow we're the ones that God is using to bring his kingdom in, it really doesn't say that anywhere in Scripture. And scripture is very clear that it's Jesus that comes. He's the one that converts this world into what it should be to his kingdom, establishes it, and then he gives it to us. He allows us to basically rule and reign with him, all right? So 
This whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. So at the end of this three and a half year period, where, where this blasphemous ruler has been allowed by God to persecute his people, justice and judgment is going to be dealt to him by Jesus himself when he returns to establish his kingdom on this earth. And this being another prophetic element to this message that causes is, issues with those that say that this has already happened to some degree. Because even if you're looking at this as the Roman Empire and looking at like basically historically when it ended, like what caused that, it really had nothing to do with Christianity. It kind of fell apart from within, like the, the authority and the rulers caused it. But it wasn't Christians that ended that. So to try to say that like spiritually, that somehow through Christians, Jesus was able to work and in this empire, that did not happen. That is really stretching it and taking it from a very liberal, um, you know, symbolic sense. So if you take that away, that this hasn't happened yet, this basically second coming of Jesus and in, in this empire, this fourth world empire, um, run by these ten horns with this little horn kind of overseeing everything. If this hasn't happened, you've got three options with this passage. Number one, there's no fulfillment, which makes the Bible false, which we know that's not true. Number two, the fulfillment was symbolic and as such was fulfilled by some other event in history, which basically the world should be reflective of God and his people having dominion over it, if that's the case, which I already expressed. I don't know about you, but I don't see how this could be the millennial reign of Christ, or this can be like heaven on earth, like it's supposed to be the way it's described. And then three, the third option is that this fulfillment is meant to be literal, and we have not seen it yet in our lifetime. Amen? So, which is what I believe. This is still to come. So verse 28. It says, here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. So the stuff Daniel was shown, it left him somewhat troubled still because probably because he was compassionate towards his people because he was seeing what was going to happen to the Jewish people during the reign of this beast and it left him troubled. But what that shows us is that Daniel most certainly believed that what he was seeing was something that was really going to happen at some point throughout history in the future. Like it really struck him and left him kind of shaken by it. So all that to say is if Daniel believed this should happen, we most certainly should believe this is still going to happen too. We haven't seen anything like it. Amen. All right. Now I just want to leave you in closing on this point. I just thought this was interesting. I was reminded of this as I was going through this because last time we went through Daniel 2, and we saw this same order or the same, this same prophecy of these four world empires. But if you look at it from man's perspective, from Nebuchadnezzar, who was a pagan king, didn't worship the one and only true God, his perspective of this was very different, right? It was like, whoa, look at this amazing statue. It's so big and so powerful and so mighty. It's just majestic. And he was just kind of like in awe over the thing, right? But if you look at it from God's perspective, through Daniel's eyes, a, a man that was, you know, following the Lord and, and wanted the things of the Lord, he had a very different perspective. He's like, look at these horrible, ferocious, wild 
animals that are just bent on devouring and killing things without conscience, right? And I think it's a good reminder to us that our hope should never, ever be in any human form of government, all right? Any, not just these empires, okay? I'm going to say something. It's probably going to be controversial to some people, but I'd say prove me wrong. But here's the thing. There's no such thing as a good government. There's not, all right? Because let me tell you, let me give you a caveat to that. It's because Romans 3.10 tells us there's not one righteous person on this earth apart from Christ. In any human formed government, therefore, has unrighteous people, at least in part, running it, right? Which means, in, to some degree or another, they're going to make bad decisions in trying to oversee man. And if you remember, if you know the Old Testament, you know that this is what God warned the Israelites about when they're like, give us a king. We want a king over ourselves. And that was hurtful to God because he's like, I'm your king. But they're like, no, no, no. We want like a physical king. And he's like, this is what's going to happen. It's going to be bad news for you guys. But they wouldn't listen. All right. <laughs> and I try to remind people too that, you know, one of the reasons there's so much about surrender and submission in the New Testament is because when we get to that millennial kingdom of Christ, it's not going to be a democracy, understand you. It's going to be a dictatorship. There's one leader and you do what he says because he knows what is best for you, all right? And we're spending our whole lives learning that now, so we're ready when we get there, all right? But that's God's form of government, one that he runs. And so certainly in this world, we see that there's better governments than other, and obviously the closer the people stick to God and his word, which is getting harder to find every year. But the closer they stick to that, the better off they're going to be. But the only perfect godly government is going to be the one that comes with the son at Jesus' second coming. And until then, all governments and political systems run by people are going to be flawed to some degree, definitely some more than others, but they're all going to be flawed. And I'm not saying at all that we're not to participate in governmental systems or in the processes God has given us to establish them, like voting or, um, you know, like, you know, maybe even running for office in some cases. If God gives you that opportunity and you feel led to do that, those things aren't wrong. They're good. And we have been given principles in God's word so that we know what policies to support, what policies not to support, what policies to endorse, people to endorse, not to endorse. We've been given everything we need to, to know these things, all right? And we should absolutely use those things to try to seek the betterment of society, which is, you know, trying to vote for um, and instill godly principles um, or policies that are based on godly principles and putting godly people into office. That's a given, all right? But you can do that, and at the same time, you cannot put your hope in the wrong place, which is in some political system run by people because inevitably here's what's going to happen it's going to fail you at some point which should be pretty easy to see over the last couple of years it's going to fail you and inevitably disappoint you all right and really as history as we go through history men just people in general just get worse at running government governments get worse and worse all right you actually even see that in our own country i think if you look through history the further away we fall from god the worse and worse 
things get and the repercussions get more severe, right? And so that's just history in general. The world is getting worse. Everything's getting worse with it, including governmental agencies. So as such, one of the reasons of knowing scripture, knowing what's coming, knowing what's happening is to remind us to keep our hope in the right thing, all right? Be involved, yes, as Jesus said. We want to occupy until he comes. But my hope is not in any worldly organization or any human-run government. My hope is in the government that's going to be established uh, with my king and that is going to last forever and that is going to be perfect in every way and that I know is coming very soon with Jesus Christ himself. Amen? So that's our hope. That's where we want to make sure our hope is in that so we don't suffer that same disappointment, all right? All the institutions we have in this world are just going to perish with everything else when this world burns at, at the second coming of Jesus when God judges it. Amen? All right. So having said that, there was a whole lot of information there. And again, I encourage you guys, encourage you guys that are watching online, if you have follow-up questions, if you, uh, if like kind of something I said sparked a question, like you're like, well, why this or why that? Or can you explain this more? I encourage you guys to get those questions to us somehow, whether that's email, whether that's personally texting me or uh, sending the church an email or sending a message on social media. Send us those questions because next month what we're going to do is a follow-up conversation about these things where there will be opportunity there to answer any questions you might have in more detail and talk about some of the things we see happening in the world that are leading up to this you know basically we talked about a little bit last month this globalization this move to like kind of this world empire um which i've actually been seeing a lot of that in the last week especially in these comments by our own president about just the need the world for the world to come together because of the threat of russia and threat of war and how we need to unify and and so you see it ever increasing in the world today this this feeling of needing to come under like a single leadership in unity um, to make everything better, which we know ultimately that's what's going to appear at first, but that's not what's going to happen. But our hope isn't in that. It's in Christ. He's going to come back and set things right. Amen? All right, let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, thank you for your word. Again, Lord, may this just produce that confident hope we have in you and what you've told us. We know we have nothing to fear. Um, you said that things would be hard. Um, in this world that we'd have tribulation, but we could take heart and take courage because you've overcome the world. And we know that you've done that now, like we're actually a part of your kingdom right now, as your word says. And so your kingdom goes wherever we go. But one day you physically are coming back to establish your kingdom on this earth. And we're going to be a part of that. We're going to be with you. And what a joyous day that's going to be. But in the meantime, Lord, we just want to be faithful, knowing that time's short, to tell everyone this good news we've received that saved us and made us a part of your family and a part of your kingdom so they can be a part of it as well. So help us do that, Lord, um, and, and help us do it with that, that joy and that hope that's produced through having confidence in you and your promises and the things that you said are coming to us, Lord, as your children. In Jesus' name, amen.